All right, you guys. Okay, we're going to be in Revelation 7 tonight. Technically speaking, we are taking a break from the seals that we've been considering. Remember, right, there was in this scroll first in Revelation 5 that was found and there was nobody that was worthy to open it. It's this emotional scene. John is weeping. But then an elder comes. And he points out that there's a lamb standing as slain. And it's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And it's Christ Jesus. And he's the one who's found worthy to open this scroll. And then it sets off a series of, of worship of God. And it, that continues for the bulk of chapter 5. And then in chapter 6, the scrolls are opened one by one. And the first four, or the, the scroll has these seven seals on it. And beginning in chapter 6, the seals are opened one by one. And the first... Four seals contain a description of these four horsemen of the, of the apocalypse, these symbolic judgments that come upon the world that also impact the church that's living in the world during that time. But they're not judgment for the church, but God is building his kingdom even through these kind of events all throughout this present evil age. And then in the fifth seal, we're privileged to read of a vision that explains why the saints in glory and what they're doing during this age uh, in heaven, what their response is to the four horsemen, the very saints who have suffered on the account of the word of God, whether that means being reviled in light of the events symbolized by the four horsemen, even all the way up to martyrdom, to death on account of the word. They are at rest, though, at, the, at that very same time, and they're desiring the vindication of God's holy name. And then in the sixth seal, we see God's answer to the saints' plea. We're taken to the end of this present evil age, and at that point, it'll be too late to repent, and God's justice will be met through the wrath of the Lamb. And chapter 6 ends with the angelic vision causing us to think, who could stand in the day of that wrath? Who could stand when the holy weight of eternal glory comes to finalize the work of redemption and bring about the final judgment and the sure glorification of those united to Christ through faith? Who can stand under the wrath of God? And this is alluding to something that was said in the Old Testament by the prophet Malachi. I've said this before, if you remember. Um, but often in the Old Testament, when a prophet would prophesy about the coming Messiah, the events concerning his two stages of coming would often be flattened. Uh, we live, you know, obviously 2022 right now. And so we live, you know, that so many years after the cross. And so we understand that Jesus is coming once and he's going to come again. But for many in the Old Testament, that wasn't clear. And the way that the prophets would give their prophecies, it was concealed. That information that Jesus was going to come in two different stages was concealed. It led to a lot of confusion. It wasn't going to be revealed really until the apostles were chosen by Jesus and he revealed it to them and they were able to teach it to others. But we know that as the scriptures confirm that Jesus was going to come twice in two stages. The first time he comes as our federal head, a second Adam or the, the last Adam, and he was born under the law and he lived in light of the old covenant and he was perfectly faithful to it. He never once sinned. It was his active obedience that was in view. And in that obedience, he earned a positional righteousness before God. And the reason he was able to do that, of course, was because he was true God himself as well. And then that righteousness is able to be accredited to us through the faith that God supplies to us. But that's not all that Jesus did at his first coming. We also affirm what we call his passive obedience. And that means that he 
went faithfully to the cross to pay the penalty that our sin deserves. To pay the penalty of the sin that all of those who are chosen in him earned. And those two things that he would do, the Son of God's work in the Pactum Salutis, that that was his work in his first coming. To live a holy and righteous life, never once sinning, and then to die upon the cross. He came like a lamb to be sacrificed. And with that, the promise of the covenant of grace the promises of the covenant of grace made to Abraham would be set in motion. And the gospel would then, after his resurrection and his ascension into heaven, where he is exalted now at the right hand of God the Father, the the gospel goes out into the nations. And those promises that God made to Abraham about Israel being a people more numerous in the sands uh, on the seashore come to fruition through the work that Christ did in his first coming. And then... As well, he was going to pro- he's promising to come again as his church is being built. The kingdom of God is being built through his, his work while he is exalted. And so the two stages of Christ's coming to redeem and reconcile mankind and bring humanity back to a um, sinless paradise, that's what they're both doing. It didn't all happen at the first coming. He's coming again. And then all those who are chosen in him before the foundation of the world, when they are all born again, when they are all united to Christ, and at that moment, at that moment the wrath of the Lamb will be poured out upon all of those who hate him, as we read about in the sixth seal. He comes at that in the second coming. He comes like a lion ready to devour. But as I was saying, those two stages weren't always clear in the Old Testament when the prophets spoke about them. And again, in fact, they were concealed, often through the prophets. And so remember, at the end of the sixth seal, we're made to wonder who can stand at the, the day of the wrath of the Lamb. And he's alluding there to what the prophet Malachi says. And so Malachi is really easy to find. If you go back to Matthew, it's the book right before that. It's the last book in the Old Testament. Okay, and so... Malachi is prophesying about the Messiah who's going to come. And you'll see in this prophecy that he just kind of flattens out the both comings into just one prophecy. So it's hard to tell. But verse 1 to 2, he says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Who's that? John the Baptist, right? So first coming, and the Lord, who, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And if we were to continue to read, it goes on like that, with some overlap of events concerning Christ's first and second coming and what would be accomplished by them. But note the question. The same question posited at the end of chapter 6 is said here in Malachi chapter 3 as well too. Who could stand on that great day of wrath? Who can stand when he, when Jesus appears? That's the second coming. And the point of chapter 7 is to give us an answer to that. And so now we have a pause in the opening of the seals. And so remember, these visions, they're not, they're not meant to be literal or even sequential. The first four seals had overlapped throughout this age. The fifth seal concerned the whole age between Christ's first and second coming, which would be called the parousia. And the sixth seal describes events at the end of the age. And so now we're taking a break from the seals to see about something that occurs before the sixth seal even. And it's important for us to know this even before the, the first seal, I, I would say as well. And this is important for us to know because as we'll see in the seventh seal, there's just silence for a short time 
and we'll explain that when we get to chapter 8. But we're only going to read half of chapter 7 tonight, and we're going to have to take uh, chapter 7 over two nights. So we're going to read verse 1 through 8. So we'll read and then we'll pray. So the reading of God's holy word, beginning at verse 1 in Revelation 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or the sea or against any tree. And then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, and 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. That ends the reading of God's holy inspired, inspired and sufficient word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for this interlude and for what it is that you plan to teach us through it, Lord. We pray for understanding. We know how divisive and how confusing a revelation is to so many, and we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would lead us into all truth, that we might be encouraged, as it is the intent of this book to have us be so. So please, may your will be done, and may we grow in truth. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, the wrath of the Lamb isn't something that most people are inclined to think of. But it is a topic that is inescapable. It is just as sure to be displayed as the fact that there is a parousia will be. Uh, The second coming of Christ is sure. And because the second coming of Christ is sure, it also means that the wrath of the Lamb is sure as well. Make no mistake, the Lord God is angry about sin all the time. Psalm 711 says God is angry with the wicked every day. But at the same time, because of the work of Christ, those who believe in him are not considered wicked by God, but they are counted righteous before him and because of the righteous, because of the righteousness of Christ who is their savior. And in these first 6 seals, the apostle John has had to see a lot. A lot of suffering, a lot of violence, final judgment. So much so that the question posed by the prophet Malachi is going to see its fulfillment. Who can stand in the day of the Lord's wrath? In other words, for who should this information not terrify to the very core? And you know what the right response should be, right? For a person who knows they aren't saved, having heard what the first six seals contain, it should be something similar to like that of the prophet Isaiah when he was caught up into the throne room of God in, in chapter 6 of his book. And do you remember what he said there? He said, Woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. It should be utter horror reading those verses if you don't know Christ. A person should be physically and spiritually unraveled at hearing such things of, of, that were described in the first six seals. But even that, is a merciful work in the, of the Lord in one's life. And the intent of this book, the apostle of Jesus Christ, isn't actually given to terrify the lost or to even awaken the lost, though it could have that effect, and I'm sure it has in the past, and I'd welcome it, of course, as well. 
But the intent of this book is to be an encouragement for the church that has to live in light of a crucified Savior who is risen and who has promised to come again. Because we understand that just as our Lord suffered in this world, that we in some way also will. Nevertheless, God is with us through these events and he's growing us and he's making us more holy through them. And so we come to chapter 7 for a, for a pause, for a, a rest, an interlude that is meant to make the saints encouraged. It's meant to be a break from what has already been shown. It's like Jesus is saying to John, you've already seen a lot of heavy things. And so before we get to the seventh seal, I'm going to give you a break. There's something that you need to understand before we continue. And what this interlude is, of course, is an answer to that question that the prophet Malachi posed. Who can stand in the, 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 in the day of the Lord's wrath? Who, on the day of the wrath of the Lamb, won't feel like having a mountain collapse on them? And like that's a good idea. And the answer that's given to John is that those who are sealed, those who are sealed are able to stand through that tribulation. God is spiritually protecting the church through the events that take place in this age. And we can be encouraged knowing that God's perfect care is over us and it never falters, even through the ways that we suffer in this present evil, uh, evil age. And so how is it that Christians can be reviled on account of the word without you know, getting revenge, without clapping back? How is it that Christians can even be killed on account of the word and go through such events without regret for it? Remember the story I shared a couple months ago about the missionary in India who was burned alive in a car with his two sons, and then his wife stayed there and continued to minister to the people in India? Like, how can that be? If you remember that story, well, it's because of the work of Christ that's described here in this, in this chapter. And so you could break chapter 7 into two halves, really, two sections. Uh, the first eight verses describe the church as an army in this world waging war through the midst of tribulation. And then the last half of the chapter is a reminder of what the church is awaiting, our triumph in the gospel. And like every chapter in this book, this is one of much debate between Christians, but we'll simply be faithful to the hermeneutic that we have already been using. And so that would mean that primarily, since we're dealing with apocalyptic visions here, these are not things that we are considering literally. Not 144,000 people literally. These are, there are theological truths that are being expressed to us here through these visions. And so just like we, we will do when we get to that very famous passage with the mark of the beast, we, where we won't be saying that it's a literal mark, such as like a barcode or a chip. Uh, the mark that we see here, or the seal that we see here, is also not a literal mark or a seal. Even Again, even the number here. So notice verse 4. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. That number is not a literal number. We aren't thinking of 144,000 people from not the, the nation of Israel at this moment. It's not as if there are 144,000 people sealed by Christ and that's it. This is a figurative number that is designed to teach us a greater reality. And Scripture is going to do this from time to time, by the way, where it just takes a number and it spiritualizes it so that we can learn something, a principle or a truth from it, even in places that aren't apocalyptic literature. For example, do you remember how many times Jesus tells us that we should forgive our brother or sister in Christ? 
70 times 7. And so if you're astute at math, that's 490 times, right? It's a mathematical equation. Now, does that mean that if your brother offends you 491 times, then you're good? You don't have to, you don't have to give him forgiveness anymore? <laughs> it doesn't mean that. that. That's what it doesn't mean. It, it, <laughs> who could even keep a record like that, honestly, other than God? The point is, is that we're supposed to forgive our brothers and sisters in the faith perpetually and permanently. And there's nothing wrong with using numbers spiritually, Joel Bickey says. And that's what we have here. So Revelation 7, 5 through 8 is then a list, right? It's a, we read that. I know that people tend to complain about lists, but this is really a great list. There are 12 groups, and each group is made up of 12,000 people. And each group has with it a name attributed to a tribe of Israel, of national Israel. But it's a really interesting list. Of all the lists of the tribe of Israel, there are over two dozen in Scripture. This one is unique, though. It's unique for who's omitted from the list and for the order of the list. So notice who's listed first. Notice what tribe is listed first. It's not Reuben like it normally is. Why would Reuben normally be listed first? Because he's the oldest son. But it's not Reuben. Reuben's actually listed second here. It's Judah. And all of the other lists of the tribes, the lists of the, the people of Israel, the tribes of Israel, Judah is never mentioned first, not until we get to here. Why now? Well, he's listed here because of what we read in Revelation 5, that Jesus is the Lion of Judah, that Jesus is from the, the tribe of Judah. The order of the tribes has changed in light of the gospel, similar to how the day of worship was moved in light of who Jesus is as well. Remember in the Old Covenant, God's people worshiped on Saturday. Now in the New Covenant, we worship on Sunday, the first day of the week, because that's the day that the Lord rose from the dead. So... Joseph is mentioned in this list as well, rather than his two sons, which take place in other lists, Ephraim and Manasseh. Uh, and then also, you know, Ephraim's not mentioned at all, and Levi is mentioned, and Dan is mentioned, who, or Dan is, excuse me, Dan is not mentioned, presumably because the Levites are mentioned because of the nature of the Levites. They were the priests, and we know that all Christians are a holy priesthood, a royal kingdom, a royal priesthood in uh, union with Christ. And then Dan is presumably missing because of great sinfulness, a, a general sinfulness and rebellion uh, recorded by Dan. And so what we have here then in this list is a picture of the true Israel of God, not the nation of Israel. It's spiritual Israel rather than physical Israel that's in view. If you've been coming for a while, and probably not, maybe just the adults, because um, I think it's been a while since we've been in Ephesians, but you, you might remember this from that even. The Apostle Paul points out there that there is a way in which a person is either a Jew or a Gentile, and it has nothing to do with nationality, but everything to do with union with Christ. And so in other words, from the Apostle's point of view, you can be a Jew inwardly and not be Jewish nationally at all, or you could be a Jew nationally and not really be a Jew at all even. You're more like a Gentile because you're not united to Christ. In, in Ephesians 2, the apostle explains how Gentiles were cut off from the commonwealth of Israel, how they were without hope and without God in the world. But then, by the blood of Christ, they've been brought near in such a way that they're no longer strangers or 
foreigners, but they're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We read in Ephesians chapter 2. True Israel, in other words, these Gentiles, because of faith in Christ, union with Christ, they are true Israel. And Romans 9, 6 is helpful as well. The Apostle Paul is speaking of the benefits that Israel had in the Old Covenant leading up to this. And so as to clear, make it clear and to point out that not everyone in Israel was a member of the covenant of grace, he says, they are not all Israel who is, which are of Israel. So in a, in a way, there's a way that we must see that you can be Israel, but not of Israel. Or in other words, from the nation of Israel. So for all of us that are not Jewish here in this room tonight, if we're a Christian, we are Israel, but not of Israel. And we're Israel because of our union with Christ. We're Israel because Jesus is the line of the tribe of of Judah. And our union with him makes us into the people of God. To be clear, note what Romans 2 says. 2, 28 through 29. You can flip there. Or you can just let me read it, whatever is comfortable for you. Romans 2, 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So you remember, right, that the nation of Israel had to circumcise, their sons had to be circumcised. And so here in Romans 2, the Apostle Paul is saying, circumcision of the flesh doesn't actually make you true Israel. I mean, it makes you part of the the nation of Israel within that covenant for them in that time period. But what really makes you Israel a true Jew is the circumcision of the heart. When your heart has been softened and you've been born again and you're united to Christ through faith, when you desire the things that God desires, when you want to truly love God, even though you still sin, yet you have a desire to repent from that sin and you want to, to be close to God. That's what it means to be a true Jew, according to Romans 2. Those who have a circumcised heart, those who are regenerated or born again, those people are true Israel. In other words, this allusion to 144,000 people is actually, is actually an allusion to the whole church. He's speaking about everyone that was chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, in a sense. Because that they, they have been sealed. We're going to get to this more in Revelation 14 with the 144,000 again. And then also in Revelation 21, where we see that there's 24 gates. And the names of the 12 apostles are on 12 of the gates. And the names of 12 tribes are on the other gates. But the point between all three of these sections, Romans, excuse me, Revelation 7, Revelation 14, and Revelation 21, which is interesting 7, 14, 21. I mean, I know the numbers and the chapters, verses aren't inspired, but it's just still worked out that way. The point, though, is in all these sections is to show how God has a plan that he's spiritually protecting and persevering his saints. But this isn't just the church existing and being protected that we have in view here. This is the church militant in this age that is being spiritually protected. Richard Bauckham notes that the way in which this numbering is listed is after, the very, is after the same fashion that Israel is numbered when it would go to war. So if you read through Judges or the Kings and Chronicles and especially Numbers, you know what this is talking about. 
If you read through those books, you'll often see the nation of Israel listed, so many men from so many tribes, as they are going out to, to wage war with people who are in the promised land. And the phrase, from the tribe of, recalls the repeated phrase, of the tribes of, in the Old Testament census lists. And again, the, the purpose of those lists was to organize a military force to conquer in the promised land. The church described here then is, if we think about what we've learned in the first six seals as well, is one that's set out in a hostile land. Remember the previous seals. These people, though, they're called out. They're set apart. They're ready to do battle for God. And how do they conquer their enemies? Not with the sword like you might expect. That's not how the gospel advances or how the kingdom of God grows. But we conquer in the same way that our Lord conquered, that our King conquered at the cross by maintaining our faith and our witness, even through suffering. Remember what the early church father, I think, I believe it's Tertullian, said, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church? And remember we talked a few weeks back about the parable of the sower and how there was some so- seed that fell into soil and it cropped up for a little bit, but then it withered away because of the account of the, of the word or in the trials that would come and the cares of this life. Well, these are people here, these 104,000 that represent the whole church, these are people where the seed really took root. And our weapons in that case, they're not carnal, but it's the gospel on our lips. It's the proclamation of it to the lost and the reminder that it provides to us as we rehearse it to ourselves. When the church presently right now and all throughout this age, is always engaged in spiritual warfare. We put on the armor of God, as Ephesians 6 tells us to. The, the church is militant in this age, that we, and we are being reminded of that here. And the Lamb is leading the church. It's the, it's the tribe of Judah that's listed first, and Jesus is the line of the tribe of Judah. We'll see that in, in Revelation 14.4 as well. But, The pause here in Revelation 7 between the 6th and the 7th seal is reminding us that the church is militant now, but at the same time, God's seal is on us. He's protecting us and he's persevering us. That is, if you are, if you have received Christ through faith and you are justified on the basis of Christ through faith, Jesus will preserve you through the power of the gospel through the events mentioned in chapter 6 in such a way that even if you're at the most extreme, if your body is, is destroyed, if you die, your soul is not going to be lost. The 144,000, which again is symbolic of the whole church, the group of people who, who are truly saved and spirit and dwelt and united to Christ, these are the people who can stand through tribulation. More on that next week when we consider the the great tribulation in the latter half of this chapter. But these are the people who are able to stand on the day of the wrath of the Lamb. And the great promise of Revelation is that when we conclude, when everything is concluded, as we'll see at the end of this book in the latter chapters, 21 and 22, because of all of the efforts and faithfulness of Christ, even if our bodies get destroyed, in suffer in on account of the word, we will get new bodies in that day when Christ comes again. No matter what may happen to us, the things described in the first four seals, 
if we're alive for the events described in the sixth seal and the seventh, we are spiritually protected. And that promise is sure. It's true because Christ has sealed us. So let's consider the sealing that takes place. So we'll go back to verse 1 now. Verse 1 begins, after this, it's that familiar phrase, the scene is changing from the sixth seal now to this new event. It's an interlude that we have. And this change of vision brings about four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. It's familiar, I think. We're still in this second visionary cycle. This is not the first time that we've seen four angels that staying at four places even. Most recently, of course, in chapter 6, there was the four horsemen. But even before that, back in chapter 5 and chapter 4, Re- uh, Revelation 4, 6 through 8, says... And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second creature like an ox, the third like a living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And then they're worshiping, right? The next verse, they have, they have six wings, they're full of eyes, and they, they're crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is to come. And if you remember, the four angelic creatures were worshiping God in light of his sovereignty. All of creation, even if it's not saved, owes God worship in some sense. And it, and it is, is worshiping God as these angels symbolize. And there's similarity here to the four angels that we read about in Zechariah 6, 1 through 8, that paralleled the four horsemen in Revelation 6, 1 through 8. So Zechariah 6, 4 through 5. Listen to this. It says, Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered me and said, These are going out to the four winds of heaven and presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. And then so you have here in Revelation 7, these four angels stand at the four corners of the earth, north, south, east, west, west, in other words, symbolism to show their role over the whole planet. And we're told that they're holding back the four winds, so similar to the angels in Zechariah 6. And these four winds are clearly winds of judgment. We see that down at the end of verse 2 and verse 3. They harm specific areas, the earth and the sea, the earth, the sea, and the trees. They are agents of righteousness and judgment and destruction, and they're ready to act. So just like the four writers in Revelation 6 and Zechariah 6. But, however, their work is delayed because of what we see going on in verse 2. And so this, this excuse me, in verse, well, what we read about in verse 3. And so in verse 2, we see this judgment is coming, but it's not going to come until something happens first, until the people of God are sealed, which is what verses 2 to 3 explain. So let me read again those verses. Verse 2, Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. I said earlier that we'll consider um, all of chapter 7 in two parts because of time constraints. So next week, we're going to consider what it means to be sealed here and the church triumphant. But and, and on the forehead even, but to close tonight, I, I want to just consider the one who seals, the one who is doing the sealing. Notice the description of the one who seals in this verse. The phrase, 
he called out with a loud voice. It is used a number of times in Revelation, I think 19 exactly. And it can either mean like a whole host of people or an angel or the Lord God himself. And the context would determine who that is. Sometimes it's clear. Other times it's not clear. It's not so clear. And this is one of those not so clear times. We've already seen how in Scripture, and especially in Revelation, that the word angel can mean more than what we typically think what we typically think of when we think of an angel. In Revelation's opening chapters, the word angel referred to a minister. If you remember in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, John addresses his seven letters to the angel of the church, the, the elders, the pastors of the church. That's one way, or an angel can, of course, mean a supernatural being, like the ones that we've been reading about in chapters 4 through 6, or the ones in Daniel, or in the gospel accounts, or even the angels that the people saw in national Israel's history, including even the angel of the Lord, which was often a concealed pre-incarnate Christ, a Christophany or a theophany. But remember at its core what the word angel means. An angel just means a messenger. And this angel here in Revelation 7 clearly has a message. Note, the four angels have been given authority over the wind, but this, and the, this new angel comes, and he gives a new charge to the four angels on the four corners of the earth. But notice from where he comes first. Uh, he's, he's ascending from the rising of the sun. Now, who can tell me where the sun rises? East. Yeah, there you guys go. Good job. East. East is correct. And what does he have with him? He has with him the seal of the living God, the very thing that will make it so that the sealed group can stand in light of the tribulation brought throughout the age and on the last day as described in the sixth seal. And then look at what he does in verse 3. He comes with a command, a charge. And what's important most of all is what's not said. For who do you think gave the angels on the four corners of the earth the power and the right to bring winds of judgment? It could only be God, right? Only God could have given the four angels the power and the right to, to be controlling these winds of judgment. Only God is responsible for carrying out such acts as he is the only righteous judge. And now here comes a messenger. And he just simply commands and he says, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we've sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. But notice what's not said. There is no God says do this or do that. There is authority in the voice of the messenger. And further, he's coming from the east. There's some, from the rising of the sun, which is the east. And there's something important to know about the east when we see the east in Scripture. Uh, the garden is planted in the east of Eden. When the fall happens and Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, cherubim are stationed on the east side of the garden in Eden. Parts of the burnt offering are to be thrown to the east side of the altar, we read in Leviticus 1. The tabernacle's entrance faces east in Numbers 18.4. In Ezekiel's vision of, of, the, of a new temple, which is a symbolic, it is a, the symbolic literature, an allegory for the church. But he talks about this temple that is being built. In it, he says that God's glory comes from the east and it enters the temple from the east. And the same temple faces east with a, with a river flowing from it. That's Ezekiel 47 and Ezekiel 43. So in scripture, Moving eastward seems to relate to exile, to, to judgment, whereas moving westward is a return to the garden, paradise, and to the presence of God. 
And so what we have here is that it is Jesus who is coming to seal the church. And he's coming westward. He's coming from the east. The angels, the horsemen, they can't do their part until this protection has come upon the church. Or maybe said better, because remember, timing in chronology is difficult in Revelation. It's not that we're necessarily supposed to understand everything chronologically in the apocalypse, but we're supposed to understand theological truth. And so what we should be thinking is that Jesus is coming and protecting the church in time all throughout this present age with this seal that he has. So the sealer here in Revelation has to be no other than the the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Who else has all authority in heaven and on earth? Who else could cry out with a loud voice, hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed all the servants of God on their foreheads? And it's we have sealed the Spirit of Christ, who is the seal of the saints, is active in this as well. This, we read that in Ephesians 4.30. I'll have to say that for next time as we think of the seal and who's caught up in that language. But there is something very beautiful in the way that Christ goes about protecting us. In Adam, we have judgment upon ourselves. And he was prevented from going back to the garden by being blocked by a cherubim with a flaming sword on the east side. But now, the lamb who was slain comes to us from the east to bring us all the way home, to be the church triumphant in a new heaven and a new earth, a paradise even better than the garden that Adam was in, than the paradise that Adam lost. And Christ, the mediator, is holding back the four winds of judgment upon the earth until all the elect are gathered in. He holds everything back until everyone whom the Father has given him is saved and has received the mark of the Lamb. Joel Bickey puts it like this. He holds everything back until all is signed and sealed and the everlasting covenant of grace has been delivered in full. So remember, again, it's it's difficult because we're thinking of all the saints throughout history and and then again, those saints who would be alive at the opening of the sixth seal, which is the the wrath of the Lamb, the day of the Lord, his second coming. And so it's happening throughout history, not just a one-time event, but it's happening in time all throughout history. And friends, the reason why anyone remains a Christian then is because of the Lord Jesus Christ. He keeps those are his through trials. His his seal is like the blood that was over the doorposts of the homes in Israel during the 10th plague. And the judgment that comes to the earth as we patiently endure until Christ comes again, none of it will be able to harm us spiritually and separate us from God. It may have our bodies harmed. We may be harmed physically but none of it can harm us spiritually. In fact, one of the great mysteries of the faith is that God uses the very same things in two different ways. The very same thing that hardens the heart of those who hate him, which spiritually damages them and their conscience is harmed. It actually, those things are actually used to soften the hearts of those who love him and conform us to Christ. He sanctifies us those very events, and he perseveres us to the very end. The lamb shepherds us, as it were. He leads us through the valley of the shadow of death, and his rod and his staff, they comfort us. And we'll see more of this as we continue next week. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for this seal, which you give, not based upon the merits of anyone, 
Not because we've done the right thing or said the right thing, but because of your mercy and the riches of your kindness towards us in Christ. So, Lord, I pray that the events of this book, if uh, as they are described and laid out, if people who are here who hear this aren't trusting you, aren't resting in you for salvation, that these things would be a terror to them, that they would flee to Christ because of that. And for those of us who are trusting in you already, Lord, we pray that you would encourage us to live boldly for you because of this, knowing that nothing can separate us from the love that you have loved us with, that we are protected spiritually, permanently, perfectly, and perpetually because of the work that you have done for us, that you would be glorified and exalted. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, anything I can try to clear up? Any questions? This is one of those spots where if you have a different hermeneutic when it comes to this book, I mean, this is one of those areas that it, that it really gets a lot of division on. So with dispensationalism and like preterism and those types of things we talked about 30 sermons ago. But is that right, Trey? Yeah. <laughs> All right.